0: So, our proverb reading today is in Proverbs chapter 29. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Proverbs chapter 29. We will be picking up in verse 16. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? When the wicked increase, transgression increases. But the righteous will look upon their downfall. Discipline your son, and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. By mere words, a servant is not disciplined. For though he understands, he will not respond. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Whoever pampers his servant from childhood will in the end find him his heir. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. One's pride will bring him woe, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. The partner of a thief hates his own life. He hears the curse, but discloses nothing. Fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Please have a seat. So the proverb says that the fear of the Lord, or excuse me, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Famous verse. One of those verses that I have no doubt at least some of you have memorized at some point in your life. Fearing people, it's one of these traps that we actually set for ourselves. So you're, you're sitting there, and if we're to describe what, you know, fear of man is... I, Maybe we would say it's like a disproportionate concern with what are they going to think? And what are they going to do? You know, if I go and do the right thing. You may never have had those exact thoughts running through your mind, but you probably know exactly what it is. In some moment, you're in a meeting, you're out with friends, you're in a class, whatever it is, someone says something. Something in you is thinking, that's wrong. But you feel this tension in the air. Your heart starts beating. The anxiety rushes through you, right? Adrenaline going through your system. Maybe your mouth goes dry, your hands go shaky and clammy, right? I think we've all been in some situation like that where you're feeling the weight of the moment. You're feeling the intimidation of, What happens if I am known not for going with the flow, for agreeing with what is being popularly said, but what if I, and I alone, am known for standing up and saying that's not right, or standing up and saying this is what God's way is? We all know that. We all know that. If we fear people, though, more than God, what the problem is, is... bringing out that when we do that, the idea is that then we go along with them instead of following God. You had a choice, God or man. To choose one is to not choose the other, so to choose man, it means not choosing God. And so there you are, afraid of what man might do to you, afraid of the wrath of man. You kind of duck, you kind of dodge, so to speak, but what you end up doing is you dodge one wrath and you incur another. You dodge man's wrath, you incur God's. That's the broad strokes of of the proverb. But it brings out the alternative. What if we trust in the Lord instead? Well, if we trust in the Lord instead, then whatever the world does, we're safe. We're safe. And that's even trying to be realistic. that The world knows how to do harm. The world knows how to do evil. You can't read the Bible and think that it is unaware of the evil of this world and what evil is capable of. No, the Bible is completely aware, even if sometimes Christians aren't. But even with that said, even knowing that the the world has some sharp claws, the proverb would say, but if you trust in the Lord, you will be saved. So you can trust in man, and the whole thing is just a trap that's going to spring on you. You won't be safe. But you can trust in the Lord, and whatever comes, you will be safe. It reminds you so much of the the kind of teaching we see in the gospel. Jesus saying, you know, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. You know, we think if we worry about that, fear about that, that's how it's going to get taken care of. And God's going to say, no. Seek what I want you to do. I will take care of. You think of the words of the Lord who can say, even if you die, you will live. And if anyone's qualified to say that, it's Jesus Christ. Even if we die, we will live because we trust in the one who is greater than death. And that's what uh, the world at large is remembering today, is that there is one who is greater than death, Jesus Christ who rose after they crucified him. We cannot please the world in all that we do. I think there's ways you can be loving. There's ways you can be winsome. I encourage you in all those ways that are available by all means. But we can't actually please the world in everything we do. And if you try, you're just going to fall into a deadly trap. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord and whatever happens, he will hold you fast. All right, saints, well, we're going to turn back to our confession today. Um, This is a deep, difficult chapter. It is chapter 22, Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. And uh, you can pray for me as I go through this, because seriously, this is not easy, (laughs) but it's good. It's good. So we're, we're recapping, you know, what are we doing with our confession? We are uh, asking ourselves, uh, what does the Bible teach as a whole? And, and that's a good question, right? We, we obviously have priorities in the sense that we're going to talk about Christ all the time. We're going to talk about the resurrection all the time. Uh, things like that are going to come out all the time. But there are other things that the Bible teaches about. And just wanting to grow as disciples of the Lord, uh, we try and learn not just about the first questions, but other ones as well. And so we come to this chapter that I tell you is full of disagreement and debate. And that's why it's just harder to teach. You have to study a lot of, a lot of things. Uh, you have to work through a lot of critique, and uh, it's just a challenge. But there, I think what we're going to do today is really try and frame this and explain why are we even concerned about religious worship in the Sabbath day. Like some of you hear that and yours perk up because you're into that kind of thing. Some of you hear that and you're thinking, how long until we get to something practical? And, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can wed all of that to say this absolutely matters and we're going to try and understand how why all those important questions so we start out framing it this way worship matters worship matters now i don't think any of you want to disagree with that instinctively but at the same time i think we can all grant that this isn't exactly what makes a whole lot of people's just like hearts grow passionate and inflamed um this isn't the most popular topic in the world even if it is an exceedingly debated topic but We start with a fundamental category, worship matters. One theologian says this. He says, the worship of God is the most important of all the Christian's tasks. That is the primary reason why the Christian should go to church, to worship God. Now, don't mishear what that man was saying he's not saying worship is the only reason we go to church but he is absolutely putting it forefront primary reason we go to church i mean another way you might phrase something like that is to say that the the most important thing that's going on in church it's vertically it's between you and the lord it's between us and the lord and we all kind of recognize that if a church doesn't have that right. If you're off with the Lord, well, everything else has to suffer as a result. And you can totally undo a church if you don't have that vertical component in place. The Apostle Paul, he'll say in Ephesians 1.12, he'll talk about that the purpose of God's people was so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Worship matters. Does Matter to God is maybe the first thing we say. And does anyone want to make the point that worship does not matter to God? No, worship obviously matters to God. It's important to God. He'll say, the the Lord Jesus Christ would say in John chapter four, verse 23, God is seeking worshipers. We say that understanding that God doesn't need us. God would have been fine, eternally, Without us, right, we didn't come along to fill some hole in God's heart. He's sitting there in eternity thinking, I'm so lonely. If only I had some human beings around, I would be complete. No, God has always been complete. God has always been self-sufficient in a way that we will never understand because we're never self-sufficient. Even the most independent of us are not self-sufficient. But that said, our self-sufficient God seeks worship. He wants worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. John Piper really famously said that the reason missions exists, it is because worship does not. And that's a helpful picture of why go forward, why start churches, why have the gospel spread You realize that there is this defining goal. God is meant to be worshipped. Humanity is meant to worship God. And so the church goes forward. It sends the gospel to dark places because no one there is worshipping God in spirit and in truth, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So because worship is not there, the church says, let's go there. Let's go there. Bring the gospel. Raise up worship. So our first concern in church is worshiping God. And that right there is a big paradigm shift. For many people, it's just simply, simply something they haven't really um, thought very specifically about. But for any number of other people, sincere, intelligent people, they're not saying that. They're going to think much more man-centered. Church is much more about us, much more about our experience, much more about our comfort, much more about our preferences. It is a big shift when you start out by saying worship comes first. What we owe God comes first. What we are giving to God comes first. And once you have that in place, once worship is first, that length of through which you're looking at the life of the church through, there's other things that then are going to fall in line behind worship instead of sort of competing for our attention up front. We'll stop defining churches by all these kind of secondary things. It's so common that a way a church gets ranked is, oh, how are its programs? Is it a comfortable place? How good is the coffee? yeah, ask me, am I joking, right? There's all these other ways that churches get ranked, and it's just really important that those things fall in line behind. So, like, I could very well picture it someday. We're we're putting out, like, a Keurig, and you can have a cup of coffee or something. I'm not opposed to that. And if we do that, I'm not going to try and serve you bad coffee, right? There will be some standard of decent coffee I would want offered Uh, just out of love of neighbor and sort of the dignity of the church in a way, right? I can imagine doing coffee, but if you're choosing your church by where has the best coffee, we have gone wrong, gone off the path somewhere, right? Fundamentally, the question you are asking is, vertical: Are we worshiping God? Are we worshiping God? And so we, we put worship... At the forefront, worship matters to God. So worship matters to us. Now, does the way we worship in church matter? Does the way we worship in church matter? So you sense a trap, right? Like that meme, it's a trap. You don't know what I'm talking. You know there's some problem here but you're wondering what is it right because can we maybe just all agree worship matters but we're not going to split hairs like you know those like medieval theologians who were obsessing over all this minutia we're beyond that you worship god in your way i'll worship him in my way we're all cool so i want you to imagine you come into church and i look at you guys and i say you know what I had a really good idea. Today, we're going to skip the sermon. We're going to skip singing praises to the Lord. And we're all going to paint a picture to the glory of God. You're not sure what's wrong with that, probably. But something about it is wrong. And so you start asking, asking yourself, well, why? Why? Why is anything wrong with that at all? What if we're a bunch of fine arts, uh, really skilled painters? Why can't we have church where we just come together and paint pictures and worship of the Lord? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, all of the glory of the Lord, right? All of life is worship. What's the problem here? So we ask this question in a couple of ways. First, would God be pleased with a church that skipped the sermon and singing and decided instead to paint pictures? Now, this is a bigger question. I want you to be clear on this. This is a bigger question than what is traditional. Because you might say, I've always been raised this way. This is the way we do things. You are violating every traditional expectation I have. But maybe you have a category that you know of. The gospel went to some far-off land where they just did things different. Maybe it could be okay for them, but here in our culture, it's not okay for us. No, we're asking a bigger question than what our traditions are. We are asking, does God have standards for this? Does God have standards for this? And then... Let's just hypothetically for the moment grant that God does have standards and they do not include painting. What if we as a church with just utmost sincerity offer something that violates the standards of God? Violates them so clearly that he actually rejects it altogether. So you're sitting there saying, I poured all my love into this painting, and God is saying, I'm not at all pleased with it. What if he rejects something that we offer him? That would be, I mean, just a, a great tragedy, right? be a great tragedy to have a whole bunch of people who really care about the Lord come and think they're offering some great thing to the Lord and he's actually displeased with it. That would be a tragedy if we offered what God actually rejected. So that's one side of this issue. Does God have standards for worship? What pleases God when it comes to worship? Here's the other side we're going to talk about. Do pastors have the right to tell you to do something that they just made up for the church's worship? Shakes her head. You're right. You are right. No, they they don't. But see, what I want you to understand is how this issue becomes really poignant, uh, really pointed. One context that we often lose when we're reading the confession, uh, when we're thinking about church history, we, we lose sight of what it means to have a church that wields any kind of actual authority. Because we are so independent. We are the people who settled the West. Yeah, try and tell me what to do. We are, you know, these descendants of the Protestant Reformation. I am all for, you know, calling out authority, bucking them, if they're wrong. But I I want you to understand the sense in which God actually intends to empower His church, not with its own authority, but with His authority. So, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. That would be of no advantage to you. So what we see here is that God very clearly is authorizing his pastors. He's giving them authority. And a church member's relationship to their pastor, it is supposed to be one in accordance with this verse, one in which uh, they trust them and so they, they submit to their authority. So I want you to see it in that light. This pastor comes along, this pastor who you trust, this pastor who God in some sense has told you you should submit to them. They have to give an account for your souls. That pastor comes to you and says, hey, I just came up with a great idea, let's all paint pictures today instead of the sermon. What I want you to feel is the tension of being caught between authorities. You have someone on the one hand who God has even told you, you should listen to them. You should submit to them. Don't make them groan, just paint a picture. On the other hand, you're sitting, you're asking, but what about God's standards? What pleases God? Is this okay with God? A lot of the, the, the spirit that you hear in the last chapter when we were talking about the conscience and this chapter on worship, you're really hearing people who have come out of abuses of authority. And as a result, they've really worked hard to define principles. Principles for how the conscience is guarded. So if I come to you and I say, guys, I and your pastor submit. You're making me groan. Can you please, please, just let me be joyful today. I just want you to paint a picture. I am your pastor. You are supposed to listen to me. Can I bind your conscience in that? Can I say you are wrong Before God, unless you do this thing I just made up. This could be anything. Hey, it snowed. Isn't snow beautiful? Guys, let's go outside and make snowmen to the glory of God. You're supposed to preach. I know. We'll do that next week. Right? It it could be anything that we want to throw out there. Guys, today I want everyone to write a poem honoring the Lord. Guys, today we're going to do the hokey pokey. (laughs) To honor the Lord. And you need to do it because I'm your pastor. We find we're really running into these matters of Christian conscience. What can a pastor tell you? What can a pastor make you do? What authority do they actually have? You see why, actually, this chapter comes after the chapter on Christian liberty and conscience. Because we talked all about the ways that churches... In addition to civil authorities, but churches can be that wrong authority, actually setting themselves up alongside God or contrary to God.
1: God says, I alone
0: rule the conscience. And this is going to have everything to do with how we talk about worship. So two broad ways we're going to look at this. What does God want when it comes to worship? What can a church require of you when it comes to worship? important questions and i hope we've given it some context so we start in the first paragraph chapter 22 paragraph one god deserves and defines worship god deserves and defines worship so let's start into this paragraph and we're just going to have to break it into chunks because there is so much to cover all right God deserves worship. The light of nature demonstrates that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good and does good to everyone. Therefore, he should be feared, loved, praised, called on, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and all the strength. All right, what do we have here? Talks, the confession talks about by the light of nature. What it's saying there is that everyone knows there's a God. It's one of those positions, really, just hold on to it. Everyone knows there's a God. The only way people get to the point where they, they tell you they're atheists is because they work at it. They have to work really hard. The Bible calls that suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And we can grant that it's hard work. And we can grant that intelligent people do it. But this is the thing. Everyone knows there's a God. Everyone knows there's a God that he reigns. No one thinks he's this little ant out there. Right? We have have this understanding across cultures that there is a God. He reigns over all. And one theologian just makes this point to say, this has been witnessed to by the common consent of all nations of all ages. Some people want to blame that on superstition, but no, it's actually humanity across time and across geography, across culture, they know there's a God. They testify to it across all those lines. And the confession will go on, say, and this God is just and he is good, and he does good to everyone. That language, that's just right out of Psalm 119. God is good and he does good. Psalm 119, verse 68. We see laid out in scripture this way that God treats humanity whether they love him or not. Matthew 5, verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Not only does all humanity know God, but all humanity benefits from God. I see these things and I realize how God is so much better than me. So much better than us. We talk about this and we call it common grace. God shows grace to all people in common, right? Sun is rising, rain is falling, even for the evil, even for the unjust. I say God is so much better than me, well, for a million reasons, but in this case, because like, if I had control of like rain, and I had, you know, evil, unjust people over here, I don't know, who wants to send rain? Let's just let them live in drought all the time, right? Let's just turn off the sun and they live in darkness all the time. That's the kind of thing I would do. God is more gracious than me and I trust you. God actually blesses all of humanity in these really fundamental ways, even though so much of humanity not just ignores him, but often outright despises him. We see that God is just, he is good, he's, he does good, and the confession goes on and says, this God should be treated as he deserves. So if we have this almighty, reigning God, full of justice, full of goodness, full of grace, there's certain responses that make sense then. And right, that's what the confession's talking about. Feared, loved, praised, called, on, trusted, served. You could broadly say, worshiped. God deserves worship. For all he is, and for all he does, God deserves worship. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 7. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. As God should be worshiped, and he should be worshiped with our complete devotion. That's where you get that language about all the heart, all the soul, all the strength, right? We see that more than once in the Gospels. Mark 12, verse 33, just being one of them. The Lord said, And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So all of humanity, rightfully, called to worship God and to do it with everything that they've got. Humanity knows it. Humanity knows the rightness of this relationship of worshiping God. For all the ways we disagree downstream from that conviction, humanity knows this one. Now, this is where the confession is going to start going into the stuff where I've just got to explain a lot. God defines acceptable worship. God defines acceptable worship. So we've talked about that he deserves worship. Now we talk about that he defines it. This is what the confession says in the next sentence. But the acceptable way to worship the true God is instituted by him. And it is delimited by his own revealed will. All right, we got a lot to do here. So historically, this has a whole context to it. Um, the The immediate historical occasion that, the, that that this paragraph comes out of, it's going to be the debate between Puritanism and Anglicanism. There's a debate over this exact sentence, this exact sentiment. So. The we, When we are teaching through our confession, we use the 1689 uh, London Baptist Confession. Uh, it's derivative but different uh, based on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, the Anglicans have the 39 articles. Okay, By and large, very good. But in the 20th article of the 39 articles, they write this. The church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in the controversies of the faith. And yet, it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything contrary to God's word written. Okay, let me summarize the difference between what we're hearing in the 1689, which is going to be much more on a Puritan trajectory, versus what we just heard there in the Anglican trajectory. If you had to summarize the contrast between the two, the church either has the right to decree everything except what is forbidden in the Word of God, or a right to decree nothing except what expressly or by implication is instructed by the Word of God. I hope you hear the difference in that. On one side, I can decree anything, meaning the church. A church could decree anything, just so long as God has never said, thou shalt not, basically. Or on the other side, the church saying, I can't decree anything. I can only tell you what God has decreed. I can only point you to the word of God. That is what we must do. Those are different. What the 1689 is laying out is what is commonly known in theology as the regulative principle of worship, regulative principle of worship. To say that another way, it's how does Scripture regulate the worship of the church? And I want you to understand. I, I can't. I try to keep saying the church, because what we're really emphasizing is what goes on in churches' corporate worship. We're not talking about everything that might fill an individual life. There's any number of things that you might do and you do them very worshipfully and they glorify the Lord, but just because you do them individually doesn't mean that's what we're supposed to do corporately. There's any number of examples on that. Cooking, bathing your children, digging a ditch. All of them can be done to the glory of the Lord. None of them are what we do in church. And there are more examples, punchier ones too, but I'm just going to leave those out. You'll have to ask me if you want to know the punchy example. And so we have all these things that may be in an individual life, but what we're talking about is the church's life, how the church worships. So if you were going to define uh, the regulative principle of worship Here's a couple of definitions for you. Derek Thomas, nothing must be required as essential to public worship except that which is commanded by the word of God. Mike Horton, only that which has clear divine warrant may be done in the public service. You're hearing this emphasis, right? Word-based and as it applies to public worship, corporate worship, church worship worship. What you're going to hear in the, the, the those who advocate for this position is a real strong conviction that they need to fight to protect the conscience of believers. They are fighting very hard for that. So Edmund Clowney writes, for people like Calvin, for the Westminster Divines, it's just a word for theologians, liberty of conscience was the issue. Any communal activity requires direction. Corporate public worship is no exception. So what, what is he saying there? He's saying that if we gather for corporate worship, which clearly the scripture calls us to do, authority is going to be exercised. It has to be. How will the conscience be safeguarded in light of that use of authority? Derek Thompson will write, the church has no power to impose on worshipers what they can and cannot do. It can only insist that every Christian must be subject to the ordering of Scripture on any given issue. The is hear this, the church's tendency to tyranny needs to be constantly guarded against. Anyone who's familiar with history knows that the church can and has abused the authority that it's been entrusted with. And actually, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. When someone can look at you and say, God himself is telling you to do this and, and you believe them for that, that is a mighty authority. Mighty authority. And so those who are going fighting for this regulative principle of worship, one of the motives is a desire to limit the church to its rightful authority. We don't want a church that's just running rampant, which is good for you to hear from a pastor. Like, if you want to give me, like, ultimate authority, I don't want it. I'm not supposed to have it. What you find in the the regulative principle of worship I think of it, personally speaking, almost like a bill of rights, but for worship. Because what are we talking about with a bill of rights? In some sense, we're balancing things, right? This is how much authority the government has. These are the rights that cannot be taken from individuals, right? We're doing a very similar thing, but now with the church. Here are uh, Here's the limit of the authority of the church, and here are the rights of the worshipers who come together to worship. We're very much trying to safeguard the conscience, guard the liberty of believers. And so, let's get into just sort of the first specific point here on this trajectory. God defines acceptable worship by his word. That's what the confession means when it says by his own revealed will. We're talking about the word of God. God defines acceptable worship by his word. What I want you to see is that this is now we are downstream from all the principles that would have gotten us here. What we're talking about is basically the sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture. We get this idea that scripture is sufficient for everything God wants us to do. We get it from 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. Uh, Really clearly, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hear that. Scripture, because it's breathed out by God, equips us for every good work. Do you think God considers worship one of our good works? Right? That just feels right. It would be hard to say the opposite. Worship is definitely one of the good works that Scripture is equipping us for. We would be surprised if it weren't. If God's like, I've equipped you for every part of the Christian life. I just haven't given you any instruction for how to worship me. That would be surprising. If you got an owner's manual for a new bit of technology, and it said it could do everything in your professional life, we're just not going to tell you how to do this giant chunk over here. You'd be like, That's missing something. We would be surprised if Scripture did not actually tell us how God wants to be worshipped. We get that conviction out of Scripture, and this is deep, deep in our convictions in, in, in the Reformed tradition of Christianity. I remind you... We always have to do this. When it comes to confessions, not for a second do we think that they rival Scripture. Not for a second. And the clearest way we can do that is the very first chapter was dedicated to Scripture. So chapter 1 of the 1689, paragraph 6, it says, "...the whole counsel of God concerning everything essential for His own glory and man's salvation, faith and life..." is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. So again, remember, we're working in categories. Both Scripture and our confession teach us to look to Scripture for how the church is going to worship. And isn't it right that God would define worship? Isn't that just right? It's right that God defines worship. One commentator says this, worship is for God's pleasure, not our own. And so everything we do in worship it must have a biblical basis. It makes all the sense in the world that God would be the one who tells us what worship is. And in fact, why would we think it would be the opposite? I mean, I give you a, a worldly example. I think of all the time My wife and I have been together now. So married, we're going on 16 years. We were together a handful before that. And in that process, all the way until today, there's a a, a matter of if you're going to love your wife, you get to know her, right? You should know about her. You should know the things that she likes, the things that she doesn't like. I don't tell her what she likes. That wouldn't work, would it? No, but you you don't go up to someone and be like, no, this is what you like. Yeah, so Naomi really likes smoothies. Doesn't care so much for, say, Slurpees. Not going to go up to her and be like, no, no, you're a Slurpee girl now. That's just not what you do. That's not how you love someone. That, That doesn't work. On every level that falls apart, if that's true of just a a human being, how much more so must that be with God? I mean, really, are we going to go up to God and say, God, you like my paintings. God, I know you've got all these instructions here for things you want me to do and to worship you with, but I have another idea. In parentheses, Better idea. How's that going to go? How's that going to go before the Almighty? Not good. It's right. It's good that God defines worship. And so we're going to pause here. I just have to chunk out these paragraphs because there's really so much to do. To just conclude this first part, this is all we're laying down so far. Humanity knows of God. And humanity owes God worship. And then God is the one who defines what worship should be. And he defines it for our good. He defines it for his glory. Next week, is this idea really in the Bible? I've got to actually make that case, don't I? But that's going to take a little while. So... Next week, what does the Bible say about this idea? Is this biblical? And I hope to show you, yes, indeed it is. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for teaching us, for leading us. And we pray, um, even today, that we would offer you worship in spirit and in truth that would please you. That would please you and that would bless us and build us up. We ask you, watch over this this day, We pray you bless all those who are going to come for the main service. We pray that you would do much good in this church and in all your churches. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.